to chapter number 5 today. We're going to move on to a new chapter, but we are going to look at the last couple of verses in Ezra chapter number 4. And what a blessing. I, I'm going to share some stuff with you today that I did not know. And I love when that happens. I love it. It happens often. I don't always tell you whenever I found something new because I don't want you to think that I'm that ignorant. But I found something new here. And uh, I tell you, it just thrilled my heart. And I, what's funny is when you read through your Bible, and I, I know some of you can attest to this, you don't always connect all the dots. And so as you're reading through, you know, in, let's say, in the month of April, you're reading Ezra. And then it may be, depending on your Bible reading schedule, it may be October before you read some of those later prophets in the Old Testament. And so you don't always connect the dots. Uh, it don't always happen that way. But today we're going to connect some dots. And by doing this, I think God's going to open our eyes to see something very blessed, very exciting. And over the next probably four weeks at least, we're going to be looking back and forth at different books outside of Ezra. And the hope is, is that it'll open our eyes to see some things that maybe we've never seen before. So look at Ezra chapter number 4, and we're going to jump in at verse number 23 to set this up. And we're actually going to read down through chapter number 5, verse number 2. So let's jump in here, verse number 23 of Ezra chapter number 4. Now when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai the scribe and their companions, they went up in haste to Jerusalem unto the Jews and made them to cease by force and power. Then ceased the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. So it ceased under the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now, to remind you of what's taken place up to this point, in chapter number one, we saw a great revival breakout, didn't we? Uh, all of a sudden, God puts it in the heart of the king. God puts it in the heart of the children of Israel uh, to go and rebuild the temple. Then we saw this great congregation in chapter number 2 that rises up, over 40,000 people of the children of Israel that rise up and go back to Jerusalem to do the work of rebuilding the temple. All of their families, uh, it's a great exodus out of the land of Babylon and back into Jerusalem, and it is a beautiful thing to behold. Then in the beginning of chapter number 3, we saw the great work start. They dug the foundations, the foundations were laid, and the people rejoiced at the end of the chapter with a great shout, but there were just a handful that didn't shout. They cried with a loud voice, the Bible says, because they could remember what the old temple was like. They could remember what the old congregation was like. They knew that they were partially responsible for the fact that Jerusalem, Israel, had been kicked out of Jerusalem, uh, out of their, their native land, and had been taken into captivity because they had failed to obey God's word, and as a result... They were responsible for what had taken place. And now their children and their children's children had grown up never knowing what it was like to live in Jerusalem. And so their hearts were heavy and, and hurting whenever all this was taking place. And then, of course, in chapter number 4, we saw the great enemy. When that great cry and that great shout went, in, went out in the end of chapter number 3, the enemy took notice and saw that something was going on. And we spent uh, two or three weeks on that idea of the great enemy. Now, with that said, isn't it interesting how the children of Israel here in chapter number 3 go through chapter number 4 
and they end at verse number 23 and 24. They went from one of the highest mountains in their lifetime to one of the deepest valleys, it seems in just a few days. However much time it took for the letter to get to King Artaxerxes, for him to read it, respond, and send it back. Let's say it was a total of three weeks to go from this high mountaintop to this desperate valley in such a short time, such a swing in the turn of events. It's just unreal. But isn't it oftentimes the same way in our lives? Mountaintops and valleys are a reality in the Christian life. And what you'll find is that sometimes the greatest defeats come on the heels of the greatest victories. At least that's true in my life, and I'm guessing you've probably experienced it in yours. It seems like just whenever we have a huge triumph, just when we get past a big, uh, a big trial that there was some victory in, it seems like right on the heels of that, we tank. And so I want to take a moment today and address this thought, and we're actually going to find ourselves going to a different place. Look now at chapter number 5 and verse number 1, because remember, the story doesn't end here. This isn't the end of the book of Ezra. It's not like God lost and Satan won. It appears that way. It seems that way, but that's not the case at all. Look at chapter number 5, verse 1. Then the prophets, Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo, prophesied unto the Jews that were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, even unto them. What was the result of these two men of God standing up and saying, Thus saith the Lord. Verse 2, Then rose up Zerubbabel, the son of Shaltiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and began to build the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And with them were the prophets of God helping them. Now, a couple of things that I want you to notice in verse number 2 that's different this time around from the first time. In chapter number 1, the children of Israel rise up because they had been given a decree by King Artaxerxes to go and accomplish this work. They were motivated by permission, motivated by uh, a demand from government, motivated by a number of different things that led them to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Something changes here. There is no decree from the king. There is no permission granted. There is nothing that's said here that would give us an indication that, that some earthly force was pushing them to accomplish this work. Now their command comes straight from the throne of heaven. God himself speaks and tells Israel exactly what he wants them to do. And they don't go and they don't seek permission. They don't ask for help. They don't fear what may take place. They just do exactly what God wanted them to do. Now there's a lot unsaid here. And it's why I think it demands that we go somewhere else to find out exactly what these prophets said that stirred up Israel so much that they went from a place of fear, a place of taking back seat, a place of just going along to get along, and they go and they fulfill God's plan and God's will. Look at it with me over in Haggai chapter number 1. Remember the two prophets here is Haggai and Zechariah. Now, I don't know for sure yet how this is going to play out. I know for a fact we're going to study through the book of Haggai. 
I don't know if we're going to study through the book of Zechariah because there's a lot of underlying truth in Zechariah. Haggai is primarily focused on this singular event. There's only two chapters, so you've got to be careful when you're turning to it. Uh, I'll turn right past it if I'm not careful, so we'll flip through some pages here. There it is, Haggai chapter number 1. You might hold your place there. I'm trying to think if we'll be back. Uh, I don't think we'll be back in Ezra today. But I, I wanted to know, as soon as I saw what took place here, I thought, boy, and, and this is what, where I had not connected the dots. I've read Haggai many times. It's only two chapters. It's easy to read. And I, I'm sure that I had read that it was commanding uh, Israel in the time they were built, rebuilding the temple and that Ezra was involved and uh, that Zerubbabel and, and Jeshua and all these different ones. I, I'm sure that I knew that it was all connected, but I had never read it from this point to this point. I'd always read it looking backwards, not forwards. So with that said, look at Haggai chapter 1. And I want to take some time today and look at what we're going to call the great prophets. The great prophets. Now, I want to share some preliminary thoughts with you on this before we jump into Haggai chapter 1. God has always sent just the right people at just the right time. Throughout all history, from beginning to present day, God has always placed just the right people at just the right places at just the right times. Now, God's time frame may not line up with ours. That's something that has always... We always view God's time frame as an injustice to humanity. And I'll give you an example. When it, and I've used this as an example before. We look at um, what happened in the First World War and the Second World War. The lives that were lost. It was devastating. And if we're not careful, we look at those circumstances and we say, where was God in all of this? But we've got to realize God doesn't work on our time frame. We could have swept some of those ideologies under the rug for a while, or they could be completely eradicated from off the face of the earth. As a result of those battles those years ago, a lot of those ideologies, those forces, were literally relinquished from the face of the earth. Yes, lives were lost. It was devastating. But God's time frame is different than ours. His purposes are different than ours. And if we're not careful, we look at God's time frame as an injustice. But one thing I know, and it doesn't take a whole lot of study of history to see it, that God has always placed just the right people at just the right places at just the right times. In this case, God sends Haggai and Zechariah at just the right time to just the right place. And we're going to see it unfold here in Haggai, and I think it's just great. What we're going to notice today is God is the source of our conviction. Look at verse number 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet unto Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, saying... Okay, so these are the two guys. These are the leaders. We, we read about how courageous they were in the first few chapters. We read about how they stood up against the enemy. The enemy tried to infiltrate Israel, remember? And they said, no, you're not going to take part in this. They were courageous. They were bold. They did what they were supposed to do. But then when that decree comes, and by force and power, these enemies of Israel come up and they pull them out of building the temple. They back down. So now we have them 
brought up here. Now look at verse 2. Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, this people, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Ye have sown much, and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house, and I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. Ye looked for much, and lo, it came to little. And when ye brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts? Because of mine house that is waste. And ye run every man unto his own house. Therefore the heaven over you is stayed from dew, and the earth is stayed from her fruit. And I called for a drought upon the land, and upon the mountains, and upon the corn, and upon the new wine, and upon the oil, and upon that which the ground bringeth forth, and upon men, and upon cattle, and upon all the labor of the hands. What we're going to see God do here is He's going to open the eyes of the children of Israel to see they have made a mistake. Now, we can definitely justify Israel's response. Think about what they've just been through. We're talking about a, a letter straight from the king saying this is what you've got to do. And then you've got these other subjects of the king that come by force and power to literally rip Israel off the land to stop them from working and doing what God has called them to do. You can understand and in a lot of ways justify Israel's decision to stop the work. But in this particular instance here, God comes along and says, that's what they said to do, but I want you to do something different. There's a lot of ways we can connect the dots here. A lot of different ways we can apply this truth. But there's one thing I want to get across today, and that is the fact that God, and God alone, must be our source for conviction. God must be the one calling the shots. If He's not, we will make mistakes. And in some cases... I'm not talking about little mistakes, minor mistakes. We're talking about big mistakes. In this case, it was a mistake that cost Israel years. We're not for sure exactly how long, but potentially as many as three to four years that the work ceased. Got the foundations laid. And it's almost as though God became more of a laughing stock after this than He would have been if they'd have just left it alone to begin with. It almost been better off for Israel to not begin the work than to begin and stop short of completion. And we're going to read that in a moment and a little bit later on. We're going to see that's exactly the idea here. So let's jump into this idea of God being a source of our conviction. And the first thing I want to look at is the distraction. The distraction in verse number 2. The Bible says, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say the time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. 
there's something takes place here that distracts God's people from accomplishing the work. And ultimately what it is, is that people are telling them, hey, not right now. The time's not right now. You shouldn't be doing this right now. And they convince Israel to stop doing what they're supposed to do. And there's a few thoughts I want to share under this idea. The first thing is that the children of Israel, their dedication here was messed up. Something was wrong with their dedication. Who were they more dedicated to in this instance? Was it to the word of the king? Or was it to the word of God? Was their responsibility greater to the people of the land? Or was their responsibility to the people of God? And in this case, they chose to stop doing what they were supposed to do as a result of the people saying, the time has not come. Not supposed to be doing this yet. This is an inconvenient time. And then from there, we see that not only was their dedication messed up, but their discernment was messed up. They thought that they should stop doing what they were supposed to do based on the fact that the king had sent word. The same king that was praising our God, the same king that was telling us what we ought to do that was right, now is coming along and saying, nope, nope, stop the work immediately. Same king. So, so their dedication was wrong. Their discernment was wrong. Because they just generally thought that everything was okay, everything was going to be all right, and whenever he said stop, they thought, well, we probably better stop. <coughs> Instead of allowing God to dictate their discernment, they allowed other people and other circumstances to dictate their discernment. And then thirdly, their direction was messed up. Their direction was messed up. The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. The idea here is that God had told them, God had moved, God had worked, God had inspired, God had given vision, God had set up the right people and put them in the right places at just the right times to accomplish a great work. God had done all of this, and then all of a sudden it's just like, it's over. In an instant, in a singular day, the letter comes, they get riled up, they come in, and they, they take them by force out of building the temple. And it's over. fact of the matter is, it's possible for good people to be misled. Plain and simple. That's exactly what's taken place here. God's people, good people, strong people, people that we look at and we say, them folks right there, they've got character. They've got courage. They've got wisdom. The strongest, best people can be misled. And that's what takes place here in verse number 2 and at the end of chapter number 4. The people are misled into believing that maybe it's not time. I know I've had those thoughts before and, and I do believe there are times where we're heading in a direction and God does have to slow down our path. God does have to build up some walls. God does have to slam some doors in our faces. I believe with all my heart that that takes place, but... In this situation, in this case, that was not what was going on. No, never was there mention in chapter number 4 toward the end of the chapter. Never one time was there mention of God said this or God did that. 
Never one time. It was, this is what the king said. This is what the people did. God never was brought into the equation. Now, bringing that full circle here, we too can be misled. And if we're not careful, especially living in these last days, we will get misled. Now, moving on from that thought, we see the distraction. Now we see the dwelling in verse number 3. The Bible says, Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Haggai, I tell you, think of the courage it takes for these men to say some of the things that they say. Have you ever thought of that? I've watched this occasionally. Every once in a great while, in a, in a political spectrum, you'll see somebody say something and you think, I can't believe somebody finally said that. You all know what I'm talking about. And now Haggai comes along, and, and by all means, Haggai could have come along and said, I understand why you did what you did. I get it, and I don't blame you. And he could have tried to persuade them with comforting words, but he doesn't. He comes right out here and he says exactly what God wants him to say. Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in the, your sealed houses and this house lie waste? What he's basically getting at, and we're going to find this out here as we move on in this chapter, he's saying, you didn't even put up a fight. And the reason you didn't is because you knew you had nice houses back in Babylon that you left to come here to rebuild my house. And it wasn't all that uncomfortable for you to just go back where you came from and dwell in your sealed houses. The word sealed there, it means decorated. It means properly built is the idea. You're living in your luxurious homes while my house lies in waste is the idea. And Haggai just comes right out and says it. What does this tell us here, these three verses, the dwelling? It tells us, first of all, that the perseverance was wrong. God's people's perseverance was all wrong. Instead of putting up a fight, instead of giving it all they got, instead of at least, at least somehow saying, no, we are going to stay here because God wants us to stay, they don't even put up a fight. They just cower down and go back to their sealed houses. Their perseverance was wrong. The priority here was wrong. In verse number 4, it really gives us an indication of where their priorities lie. Does it not? Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses and this house lie waste? You could take the word this right there, and, and if you wanted to, you could say my house. God's house. Here you are in your sealed houses and God's house is lying in waste. Their priorities were all wrong. Well, I want my children to be comfortable and safe. I want my wife to be comfortable and safe. I want to make sure that, that I'm doing what's right by my family. All good things, aren't they? Honorable, noble. The problem is God's house is lying in waste. And so their priorities are all wrong. And then lastly, their perspective was all wrong. That's why God has to tell them in verse number 5, Consider your ways. Literally, the idea there is to reevaluate your decision. You know, this is good for every Christian to do. 
And if we're not careful, we will go right through life and we will never look back and reevaluate. Did we make the right decision there? I'd like to think that I'm not so proud to think that every decision I make is the right one. Because it's not. My wife will be the first to tell you. I've made some doozies along the way. I'll tell you this. Come here be your pastor. is one of the best ones I ever made. I'm really happy to be here. But I've made some mistakes. I've made the wrong decisions at times. I've misstepped and have been misled from time to time. And with all of that said, here God is saying, okay, what I want you to do right now is stop where you're at and realize I have a plan for you and you're not in the middle of that plan. Reevaluate your decision. Consider your ways. Their perspective was wrong. We can be misled and we can make mistakes. Now moving on from here, I love this next part. Of all the parts, this might be my favorite part. Okay? The next thing we see is the disturbance. Something starts happening to Israel when they have stepped out of God's will for their life. And it is so telling as to how God moves in our lives. Look at verse number 6. Ye have sown much and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink... But you're not filled with drink. He clothed you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Here's what he's trying to remind Israel of. He's, he's basically saying, I want you to look back over the last three or four years that you have not been doing what I called you to do. And while you've been earning wages, while you've been drinking, while you've been clothed, while you've been eating, have you noticed that you haven't been satisfied? The satisfaction of life is sucked right out of Israel. Why? Because their life is not measuring up to the life God wanted for them. I love the fact that God is this involved in our lives. And it may drive you crazy, but boy, I love it. I am so thankful that whenever I am out of God's will, God lets me know it. He doesn't have to do that. You know the worst parents on earth are the parents that just let their kids do whatever they want? I'm serious. The, the, and here's what it is. A lot of people think that it's, well, I just don't want to punish my kids. I just don't want to hurt my kids. I want my kids to be my best friend. But really, really, it's I'm too busy on social media right now to deal with it. I'm too caught up doing my own thing to have to mess with them. It's not actually love to refrain from disciplining your children. It's the exact opposite. I believe with all my heart that when you withhold discipline, it's not as a result of you caring for your children, it's a result of you caring for yourself. Attribute it to laziness, attribute it to selfishness, attribute it to what you'd like, One thing I know is that the best parents are the parents that take the time and the energy and the effort to direct the lives of their children through discipline, through correction, through instruction. Those are the best parents. God is a good parent. And whenever we step out of God's will, He steps in 
to our lives. And He moves and works to get us back to where He knows is best for us. And that's what He's doing here with Israel. I'm calling it a disturbance. That's exactly what God does. He disturbs our lives whenever they're outside of His will. Why? Because He knows that where we're at isn't where we're supposed to be. And that where He wants us to be is infinitely better than where we're at now. He doesn't do it because of a lack of love. He does it because He does love us. And to think that He's willing to take the time and the energy and the effort to do this in each of our lives individually is astounding to me. I think it's a beautiful display of His love. So in what ways will he, is He willing to disturb our lives to get us back into His will? Well, we see in verse number 6, He disturbs a lot of things. First of all, He interrupts their work. <laughs> ye have sown much, bring in little. i got to get personal with you. We haven't been doing our sales business for a while. But over the last eight years, while we've been in the sales business that we're in, I am amazed at the times that I know I'm out of God's will. Something in some place, some part of my life, I have misstepped. And I know it personally. And I know this sounds crazy to you, but I know when we're not going to have success in our business because I have misstepped and I've walked out of God's will. And my family, they throw their hands in the air and they say, I don't know why. Why is it that this isn't working out? And why is it that that's not working out? And my heart, I know. God's willing to interrupt our work if it means getting our attention. God infects their appetite. Look at verse number 6 again. It says, Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. God interrupts their app, or God infects their appetite. That He comes along and He says, Listen, you can eat all you want, but you're not going to be full. You can drink all you want, but you're not going to be full. God has the ability to interrupt our appetite. Thirdly, God inhibits their senses. Look at verse number 6. Again, in the middle of the verse, it says, Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. God is able... Think of this. God comes along and He, he literally inhibits their sense of warmth, their sense of touch to get their attention. If you don't see love in that, I'm sorry, because that's all I can see. That He's willing to come in and He's actually willing to, to change how they feel to get their attention. Fourthly, God impoverishes their supply. They're bringing in all these wages. Bringing in all these wages. But every time they look at the bank account, it seems like it's nearly empty. What is going on? I, I tell you, man, this... There have been times that it seemed like and here's how Satan can mislead. It seemed like God was just pouring it out. And I knew there were things in my life God didn't want there. And it was just pouring out, pouring out. But then I'd open the bank account. i think, where did it all go? Somebody had to have hacked our account. Have you ever thought that? <laughs> Don't pretend like you haven't thought that. We've all been there. 
I actually, oh, I shouldn't tell you this, but I'm going to tell you anyway. I actually called the bank one time. I said, hey, something's wrong. And they said, what do you mean something's wrong? I said, somebody's done something to my account. They said, what are you talking about? I said, I promise you I put way more in there than what's in there. And they start reading me off all the transactions. And I thought, yeah, that was me. That was me. That was me. And I said, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Click. <laughs> No, it wasn't her. It was me. God can do that. I believe God does that from time to time. To get our attention. To get us to reevaluate. Reassess the decisions that we make. He can impoverish our supply. And then lastly, God intrudes in their home. Look at verse number 9. You looked for much, and lo, it came to little. And when you brought it home... I did blow upon it. Now the idea there when it says blow upon it, it, it's as though you've got dust on a tabletop and he just blows it off. That's the idea here. He's saying you brought it home and I just blew it away. And then he asks the question, why? Why am I doing this? Saith the Lord of hosts. Because of mine house that is waste and ye run every man unto his own house. Therefore the heaven... Uh, over you is stayed from dew, and the earth is stayed from her fruit. And I called for a drought upon the land. Think of that phrase. I called for a drought upon the land. We're, we're getting ready to see, we're able to see here in these verses the inner workings of God in our lives to perform His will. And upon the mountains, and upon the corn, and upon the new wine, and upon the oil, and upon that, uh, the, that which the ground bringeth forth, and upon men, and upon cattle, and upon all the labor of the hands. God intrudes on their homes, on their livelihoods, on their families. Say, so, preacher, what's the point you're trying to make? Well, we can be misled, and we can make mistakes, but we serve a God who knows how to make it right. And that's exactly what He's doing here for Israel. Over the last three or four years, God has been moving, God has been working, trying to correct the wrongs. And finally, He sends Haggai to say, all right, I'm going to make it plain for you. This is what's going on. This is why I've been doing what I've been doing. Last thing I want to look at this morning is the direction. Look back at verse number 8. God plainly states His intentions for Israel in verse number 8, and this is a turning point. For Israel. And they'll never turn back after this until the temple is completed and ultimately until the walls have been rebuilt. They move forward and accomplish what God wants them to accomplish no matter who rises up against them. Look at verse number 8. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house and I will take pleasure in it and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. God gives them a directive. And ultimately what He's saying to them is He's saying, first of all, Go where I want you to go. In this case, God wants them to go to the mountain to gather up some wood to start building. You better believe that when five to 10,000 of these people that have just been sitting on their hands for the last three or four years suddenly get up and start walking up the mountain, that the entire land takes notice. Something's going on. And I'm sure that the enemies that we read about in Ezra chapter number four are scurrying around. The lawyers that we taught about, they're scurrying around trying to figure out what happened. Did the king put out a new decree or 
Did he go back on his word? Now we've got a new king here. This is Darius. This isn't Artaxerxes. Is Darius changing his mind? I mean, what's going on? And they're going to pool their sources. We'll see it. They're going to try to pool, pool all their resources to try to stop what God's doing. They climb up the mountain. They go where God wants them to go. Number two, they give what God wants them to give. Look at it, what it says there. Go up to the mountain and bring wood. Bring the wood. They go get it and they bring it in. They give what God wants them to give. And then lastly, they do what God wants them to do. That's the heartbeat of this whole lesson. Do what God wants us to do. It's really that simple. It takes a lot of the work out of it for the preacher. When we just simply break it all down and say it's about doing what God wants us to do. That's what it's all about. And what do they do in verse 8? And build the house. Go up to the mountain. Go where I tell you to go. Bring the wood. Give what I tell you to give. And go build the house. Do what I tell you to do. What develops? What's the result of correcting our dedication, our discernment, and our direction? What happens when we rectify our perseverance, our priorities, and our perspective? Well, at the end of verse number 8, it says, And I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. What happens whenever we fulfill God's will for our lives regardless of what others may say, what others may think, or what others may do? God is pleased and God is glorified. And folks, that's exactly why we're here. The essence of the human life is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. To bring Him pleasure, to bring Him joy. And that's what we do when we accomplish His work. When we stand up and we move forward and we do what He has called us to do, we, in essence, bring Him pleasure and bring Him glory. Now, here's what's exciting. When we go where He wants us to go, when we give what He wants us to give, when we do what He wants us to do, He, in turn, will bring us pleasure and will raise us up. It's interesting how that works. All of these things that God does infiltrating and implementing into their lives all these different things to get their attention that we just studied about are going to turn around and He's going to do the opposite. Now when they eat, they're going to be full. Now when they work, they're going to have enough. Now instead of it seeming like every time they turn around, everything's been taken away from them, now they're going to have a plenty. God's going to turn around and change it for them. What's going on here? This beautiful cycle of submitting to the conviction of God on our hearts to renew a life that brings Him pleasure and glory and thus enhancing our Christian walk is what the pains of conviction are all about. I'm going to read that again. The beautiful cycle of submitting to the conviction of God on our hearts in order to renew a life that brings Him pleasure and glory and thus enhancing our Christian walk is what the pains of conviction are all about. This wasn't pleasant, what Haggai had to say. This didn't feel good. This wasn't the news they wanted to hear. They thought that maybe they'd been in the right. We're just submitting. 
We're just doing what we're supposed to do. They thought they had done the right thing. And Haggai's coming along and saying, you stepped out of God's will. You got misled. You made a mistake. But God can correct it. Here's what I want you to do. And I'll tell you, moving forward, if you want to know what our protocol is going to be as this world winds down to a close, it's real simple. We're just going to do what God wants us to do. And we're going to leave the results of doing that up to Him. And the results won't always be pleasant. They won't always be easy. One thing I will tell you that you can rest assured in, we're not going to do it despite people. We're not going to do it just so we can be rebellious. We're not going to do it just so that we can pick a fight. We're going to do it in a spirit of love. We're going to do it in a spirit of faith. We're going to do it with peace. We're going to do it the way God wants us to do it. But I tell you, we've got to do what God wants us to do. We've got to consider our ways. Have we been misled? Have we made mistakes? The fact of the matter is God can make it right. Isn't it interesting that whenever they stop building God's house, God stops influencing theirs. And the moment they pick up and they start back doing what God wants them to do, all of a sudden their homes are blessed. I love how God works in our lives like that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word today. We pray that you'll use it for your honor and glory, Lord. I pray that as we move through the book of Haggai, I think it's going to be so instructive. The timing could not be more perfect. And Lord, I pray that you'll open our hearts and that you'll open our eyes to see it the way you intend. Forgive me, Lord, for the, the mistakes that I have made. Forgive me for the times I have been misled. But I'm thankful that I serve a merciful God who can make right my wrongs. Lord, would you lead us and guide us and direct us for the days and weeks and months and years to come? Lord, let us primarily consider you and your ways and what you desire. And then, Lord, help us to walk in it. We pray in Jesus' precious name.